0: Hey there everybody, welcome to the High Experiment, the show where we use the text of scripture to understand and find life on God's terms and not our own. Well, here we are finally, the final chapter of the book of Genesis. We've been exploring Genesis for 45 weeks now, and we're finally at the end. And as we examine the structure of Genesis from the idea that Genesis is a self-contained story, we will realize that this final chapter contains within it more than it might seem to contain on the surface because this is the chapter that sums up the entire book and brings it to a close and as this occurs there is in this chapter a close not just of the narrative that had been occurring all throughout this book but this chapter also contains a close on the thematic and theological levels and this is vitally important as we can look at this book as a small-scale foretelling of everything that will in the history of the world from creation up to the messianic kingdom which we have not yet arrived at in our own time this book is as isaiah says it the end told from the beginning and with this view we can find that the theological and thematic summation of this book contains ideas that are foundational to all points of history all points of interpretation and an understanding of god and how he operates in our own lives in fact The main point of this chapter is something that is fundamental to all of Scripture. The book of Genesis is coming to an end, but it reveals within a depth of understanding of who God is, and this book ends with a jumping off point for the book of Genesis. And Not simply in the ending of the narrative of the patriarchs of Israel and the location and the setting for what is to come, this final chapter begins a discussion that is then entered into and explored much fuller in the book of Exodus. And this final great point of the book of Genesis is intricately connected to the beginning of the book, the thing that introduced conflict into the world, a world that was supposed to be whole and perfect and good. And there's the question, what is good after all? What is evil? In Genesis 3, man demonstrated that he desired to know what good and evil were, and he ate the fruit of the tree of death. And in so doing, mankind was given this insight. Man was caused to know good and evil. And this is something that man has been struggling with ever since. What is the definition of good? What is the definition of evil? How can we define it? How should we define it? What should it be defined as? And perhaps more importantly, and most commonly overlooked, when should we define it? What? Why is when the most important part of this? Why is this the part that can help us most? And the truth is revealed in this text, in this chapter. This idea of when good and evil is definite and intricately interwoven with the concepts of what and how. Because the fact is that if we attempt to define too early, We will arrive at an incorrect definition. Things that are good will be defined as evil, and things that are evil will be defined as good if we enter into that sort of judgment too early. Now, this may be the most important thing that we can learn from this book of Genesis, which is why this book both begins and ends with the concept, what is good? What is evil? How do we define it? And what can we learn through that definition? It's here in the pages for us to see. So let's read the Parsha and then discuss the book of Genesis. Genesis forty nine twenty nine through 50, 26. And he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Avraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial site. There they buried Avraham and Sarah, his wife, and there they buried Yitzhak and Rivka, his wife, and there I buried Leah, the field purchased, and the cave which is in it from the sons of Chet. And When Yaakov ended commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And Yosef fell on his father's face, and wept over him, and kissed him. And Yosef commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Yisrael. And forty days were completed for him, for so are completed the days of embalming. And the Mitzrites wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Yosef spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, See, I am dying. Bury me in my burial site, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. And now please let me go up and bury my father and return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. And Yosef went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, and the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Mizraim, and all the house of Yosef, and his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, and their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the garden, and they lamented there with a great and very heavy lamentation. And he performed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Mitzrites. And that is why its name was called Avel-Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Yarden. And his sons did to him as he commanded them. For his sons brought him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Chittite as property for a burial site. And after he had buried his father, Yosef returned to Mitzrayim he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph hates us and pays us back all the evil which we did to him? And they sent word to Joseph saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, This is what you are to say to Joseph: I beg you, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the Elohim of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, See, we are your servants. And Yosef said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of Elohim? And you, you intended evil against me, but Elohim intended it for good, in order to do it as it is this day, to keep a great many people alive. And now do not fear, I provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And Yosef dwelt in Mitzrayim, he and his father's household, and Yosef lived one hundred and ten years. And Yosef saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Mecher, son of Maneshah, were also born on Yosef's knees. And Yosef said to his brothers, I am dying, but Elohim shall certainly visit you and bring you out of this land, to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov. And Yosef made the children of Israel swear, saying, Elohim shall certainly visit you, and you shall bring up my bones from here. And Yosef died being 110 years old when they embalmed him and he was placed in a coffin in Mitzrayim. Well, there it is. We're done. Genesis is, is over for this experiment. This book is one that's unlike any other. It spans several thousand years. This book recounts the lives of many men who are fundamental in the process of God's redemption. And this book gives us a simple overview of the path of redemption that We each experience, both individually as well as corporately. This book is a book of beginnings, and we find in this book the origin of every other idea that is explored in more depth later in Scripture. This book begins by introducing us to the God of creation. He is a God of life who brings forth life and then chooses one part of his creation to rule over the rest. As part of creation, man Instead of choosing to remain in this calling and to rule over all, we chose rather to allow a beast to rule over us. And so we've descended into this state of death and the entire world has been dragged along with us. Down into a realm of not only life as it was intended, but life and death combined together. With the setup of this problem as described in the early chapters of Genesis, then comes the process of the solution. And the solution is not so clear-cut as humanity wishes it to be. Man was given a clue from the very beginning. The serpent, the beast of sin, would be crushed, and in this crushing, the one who would come forth would take within himself the death that the servant brought. And so an exploration of the process of redemption begins. First comes the birth of the son, the creation of life through the means of men rather than directly from God. And the question is asked, is it simply a man in the right family that will fix everything? The promise that was given was that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent, and this first son was the seed of the woman in this text. But this is not to be. The first son also allowed the beast to rule over him, and in so doing, he brought death upon another. Rather than bringing blessings and life, so the question is then asked can we simply get rid of all the bad people in the world and through this solve the problems of the world? And once again, the answer is resounding no. Getting rid of all the bad people is not enough because sin and death it exists within our flesh. The flood solves some problems, but it didn't solve the base problem. And if only one man survives, sin survives. Even the best of the Son of Man is not capable of redeeming death. Well, then mankind gets together and asks the question, can we overcome our own failures and the curse of sin and death through technology? Can we ascend into the heavens and place ourselves next to God, or even over God? And the answer, once again, is a resounding no, because without access to the Tree of Life, no matter what man invents, There will always be death, we will bring it upon ourselves. Technology may improve our quality of life, it may take us to the heavens, but it can never give us life as God intended it to be. So then God picks a single man from the nations, not the first, not the best, or the greatest. Rather, He chooses a third son and calls him to follow and obey. He promises that the redemption and salvation that was promised from the beginning will come through this chosen man. But the great enemies of men conspire against him. Death stalks his wife as her womb is barren and she is unable to bring forth life. And time stalks them as the passing of time invariably brings death to all. And so it is once again that man seeks to attempt to create the path of redemption under his own power. And this exercise, once again, fails miserably. A son is brought forth, but not the son of promise. He is brought forth under human means and societal institutions and an understanding of good and evil. It is good that a man have an heir, after all. Without an heir, his line will fail, and there will be no redemption. Having a child is seen as as good, and so, in order to accomplish this good, a bit of bad is allowed to seep in, and that bit of bad it taints the whole thing. And the evil that was in the seed form and the good that Abraham attempted under his own power led to great evils that have occurred throughout the ages of the world. And this continues through the book of Genesis, men attempting to create good on his own terms, to define according to societal norms and with a multitude of understandings. Covenants are made with evil men, men deceive others to be raised to the level of leader, men kill others to protect their reputation, and on and on and on it goes. Man attempts to bring about the promised redemption, and in so doing, great evils erupt on the face of the earth. And the result of this is death and destruction, shame and heartache sorrow and guilt on a massive scale that looks as if it can never be reversed or made right and so it is that a son is sold the family of promise is divided the household of redemption is nearly destroyed as each brother defines for himself what is good and what is right and what is proper evil comes about in is unleashed on this family of promise Uh, evil is unleashed on the son of promise that is destined to be the savior of mankind and evil is allowed to run rampant in the family it's allowed to run rampant in the world and before the end the earth itself turns evil and the entire thing becomes a place of death the land that should support life becomes only a source of death the means of blessing and abundance and sustenance becomes itself an ancient of death. And yet, in the midst of the death that surrounds everything in the land of promise, there is one. There's one who has suffered great evil at the hands of others, and he's chosen to bring good to a world that's done nothing but bring him harm. This one is placed into the earth. Why? Is he to bring good to the world? Yes, and he does. But how is that good defined? Well, it's defined in the same way that it was back in the very beginning. Good is defined in the same way that it's been defined throughout the book of Genesis. And is defined in the same way that it is in this very last chapter. So as we get to this Parsha, it begins with Jacob requesting that he be buried in Canaan, in the cave of Machaláh. Now, this was something that we read two weeks ago, and I didn't really focus on it at that time. In Genesis 47, 28-31, the same request was made. And the request wasn't made to all of the sons together, but rather only to Joseph at that time. And in Genesis 47, Joseph was required to swear that he would see it done, even after he had agreed to do it. Now, in Genesis 49, Jacob makes the same command after he's finished blessing all of his sons. And it is from these requests that we get a glimpse of the ancient idea of death. Throughout Genesis and throughout Scripture, the idea of death is steeped in the idiom of being gathered to one's fathers or gathered to one's people. Jacob, in this request, he makes the idiom of being gathered to his people into a physical exercise that is to be carried out by his children. Take my body to the place where my people were buried and bury me there as well." And it's this that takes up the majority of the final chapter. The process of what occurred after Jacob's death. Jacob passes and Joseph's first command is to embalm Jacob, to mummify him, to preserve his body. The process of embalming and mummifying was done for a specific purpose in ancient Egypt. It was thought in ancient Egypt that when a person passed, their soul would wander about and at some later date the soul would then return to the body. But if the body was missing or decomposed beyond recognition, then the soul would not be able to identify the body. And so the soul would be destined to wander the earth forever in search of its body and unable to reunite with it in eternal life. Now we catch here a glimpse of just how much Egypt has been incorporated into the life of Joseph something that we caught a glimpse of last week as well. The Egyptian ideal of preserving the body for the soul to re-inhabit is one that is not biblical at all. In fact, we are told that we will receive new bodies at the resurrection, and so this preservation of this faulty flesh is a preservation of a body of sin. Uh, I find it highly likely that had Jacob not made Joseph swear to do this, Joseph would have been perfectly happy to allow Jacob to be buried in Egypt to allow him to be mummified and given a tomb among the great. And in verse 5, we see that this is what Joseph opens with as he comes to Pharaoh to make his request. And we get this picture of Joseph coming to Pharaoh and sheepishly asking to take Jacob to Canaan and bury him. And he opens with, If I've found favor in your eyes, my father, he made me swear. Pharaoh's response is, Well, if he made you swear to it, then I suppose that we should do it. And so it is that Joseph and his brothers and the entire household of Jacob leave Egypt and return to Canaan, and they are accompanied by the elders of the land of Egypt, by chariots and horsemen and a great company. As they arrive at Canaan, they come to the threshing floor of Atad, which is said to be beyond the Jordan. Now, if we were coming from Egypt to Canaan, which path would be the most likely to take? Uh, It would be the king's highway, of course. And we know from ancient times that the king's highway ran from Egypt along the coast of Israel, and then it split in the north in what would later become known as the land of the tribe of Naphtali, the cave of Machpelah, is in Hebron, and so it's only a short jaunt from Egypt, and it requires no one to get close to the Jordan at all, if you take that path. So why would they come up to a place that's on the east side of the Jordan and then wait there for seven days of mourning from the east side of the Jordan? I have no idea, frankly. We're not told in the text why they chose to go around. What we do know is that several hundred years later, when Israel leaves Egypt once again, they're accompanied by horses and chariots and the elders of Egypt. And when they arrive at the edge of the land, they are on the far side of the Jordan and they wait there for a time before entering the land. This entire journey is in some way a foreshadowing of the later Exodus that we are about to read through the rest of the Torah. And the fact is that this Pharaoh, he allows the people to leave for a time and to spend time away from the land, and Israel has every intent to return. He even sends with them an honor guard to demonstrate the great honor that Israel has in the land of Egypt. Now, the easy exodus of Israel is demonstrated at this time through this Pharaoh in the days of Jacob. This exodus is something that the Pharaoh Moses could have mimicked, but he did not. He chose to not show honor, to not escort Israel from the land, to not allow Israel to leave. And yet, in the course of the exodus, we actually discover that each one of these things occurs. He does it despite his hatred for Israel. He gives them honor. He escorts them from the land, so to speak. It's more of a chase, but the horses and the chariots, they're there with them. And he does allow Israel to leave. This Pharaoh, however, he is friendly, and he gives abundantly to Israel. However, the later Pharaoh, he's hostile, and he takes and takes from Israel. And these two Pharaohs, they provide a dichotomy of world rulers in a pattern that we can see throughout Scripture. And in this dichotomy, we're provided with another attempt to redeem mankind. And for a time, it works in a way. But no matter how friendly a nation is to the people of God in one generation, simply wait a few generations and this friendly nation will turn hostile and oppress them. The sons of Israel who had been on this burial honor trip, they returned to Egypt. And now the litmus test comes. They no longer have father protecting them from Joseph. If Joseph desires to repay them for their transgression against him, now would be the time for him to pounce. This is the same thought that existed in the heart of Esau. When father dies, I'll kill Jacob for his transgression against me. The brothers, they expect Joseph to act in the same way. This is, after all, the natural response, the response of the flesh when we've been wronged. And so the brothers conspire together once again. They conspire to protect themselves from their brother that they don't fully identify with. They make up a story once again. This is, this is what father said before he died. Forgive your brothers the transgression of their sin against you, for they did do evil to you. And then they attempt to soften the expected response by plying Joseph with a fresh command from their father. And then they go and they bow themselves before him. Once again, we see echoes of Jacob and Esau in this, sending a message ahead of himself in an attempt to soften the one who was wrong. Then upon entering the presence of the one who had been wronged, bowing before him in utter humility. And the response of Joseph is also one of humility. Now he has every right to demand recompense from his brothers to seek to hurt his brothers in response to the way that they had harmed him. But instead, in his humility, he asks, Am I in the place of God as judge? And here's the most important thing that we can get from the book of Genesis. What you intended for evil, God intends for good. Now others have intended for evil against you, and God intends for your own good. And here at the very end of the book, this question of good versus evil is one last time discussed in contrast to the earlier passages in Genesis. And in this short statement, there is a world of wisdom. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, what was said of them? Now they are like God, knowing good and evil. Mankind knows both good and evil. But the idea of knowing something in the Hebrew is not simply a matter of containing information in your head. Knowing in Hebrew includes an intimate experience of something. To know your wife is to experience her in a way that is beyond simply head knowledge of her as a person. To know the Word of God is far beyond simple Bible memorization. To know God is more than to simply have facts about God in your head but rather to have a very real and intimate experience with God. Knowing good and evil It describes a state of existence in which one is intimately acquainted with both good and evil. It's our human intellect that takes this and then makes this intimate knowledge into a fight. Good versus evil, two forces in opposition. And while this is true, good and evil are in opposition, just as day and night and light and dark and cold and warm and up and down and male and female and more are in opposition, this isn't the soul and the fullness of the truth. This is simply a foundation of our world experience, and our world is one of polarity. This is the world that has resulted from a knowledge of good and evil. Not good versus evil, good and evil, both sides of the coin, both expressions of our fallen reality. There is an application for the definition of good and evil, but we have to take our cues from Scripture in regards to how we define these things. I mean, God, after all, knows good and evil, and it's common to say that God only brings good, but that's not what Scripture describes. Isaiah 45 5-7 says, I am Hashem, and there is none like me. There is no God beside me. I gird you, though you have not known me, so that they know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none but me. I am Hashem, and there is no one else, forming the light and creating darkness, making peace and creating evil. I, Hashem, do all these things. What's used in opposition to evil in that passage? Well, it's peace. It's shalom. Then if we look to Job 2, verse 10, it says, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Indeed, should we accept only good from God and not accept evil? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. By admitting that both good and evil come from God, Job does not sin with his lips. In Deuteronomy, it's stated like this. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. I put to death, and I make alive. I have wounded, and I heal, and from my hand no one delivers. in second chronicles, it speaks of God' sending an evil spirit who led Ahab astray in second chronicles eighteen nineteen through twenty two and Hashem said, "Who shall entice Ahab, the sovereign of Israel to go up to Ramoth Gilead?" And one said this and another said that and a spirit came forward and stood before hashem and said let me entice him hashem said to him in what way and he said i shall go out and be a spirit of falsehood in the mouth of all the prophets and he said entice him and also prevail go out and do so now and now see hashem has put a spirit of falsehood in the mouth of these prophets of yours and hashem has spoken evil concerning you hashem has spoken evil concerning an evil king and it was Hashem who sent evil spirits to afflict King Saul in first Samuel 16 14 through 15 and the spirit of Hashem turned aside from Saul and an evil spirit from Hashem troubled him and the servants of Shaul said to him look now an evil spirit from God is troubling you." Now, God is indeed intimately acquainted with both good and evil. And if he is the source of all, then he is the source of evil as well as the good. And this is a picture that scripture paints for us. Now, this seems heretical to us because we want a God that is only good. And he is indeed good. And Mark 10, 18 says, And Yeshua said to him, Why do you call me good? There is no one good except one, God. God is indeed good, but he is intimately acquainted with both good and evil, and he knows when to use each, because he has a greater purpose than either good or evil. And in the beginning, God gave mankind an option, do life his way, and only ever experience good, or choose to do life on your own, and experience both good and evil become intimately acquainted with both just as all of existence does eve chose the experience of evil adam in return then chose the experience of evil as well we each choose to know evil as well as good we can't escape it because not one of us is good why do bad things happen to good people it doesn't not one of us is good we're all acquainted with and experienced in evil we're each an intricate mixture of both and from both the side of it happening to us and from the side of us doing it to others both the good and the evil not good versus evil we as humans we get so caught up in this definition of good and evil that we lose sight of the simplicity of the definition of good. How is good defined in Scripture the first time that we read of it? In Genesis 1, good is defined seven times. And when are those seven times declared? Only after the work had been accomplished and the constituent parts were in place to support life, once the poles had been created in this great universe of polarity. All throughout Genesis we read of things being good. And in the majority of cases, it's describing something according to an individual's value system, good as defined by the person who's experiencing it. For example, Genesis six two, the daughters of men were good in the sight of the sons of God. Genesis twenty four six and twenty six seven, Rebecca is described as good to look at. Genesis eighteen seven, Abraham chooses a good calf and feeds his guests. Genesis 31.24, and thirty one twenty nine, Laban speaks of speaking nothing good or evil to someone. In Genesis twenty seven nine, Jacob is told by Rebekah to get two good goats for his father. Genesis thirty verse twenty, Leah claims that God has given her a good gift in her sixth son. In Genesis forty through forty one, the word good is used to describe the dreams and the interpretations, and these dreams and the items within these dreams. And there are a handful of other times that the word good is used in Genesis, but each time it's a human value-based definition of good. In fact, if we really look through Genesis, there are only a very few times that the term good is used in Genesis where it's according to God's value system. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in the creation of the garden. Genesis 15, 15, Abraham is told that he will live to a good old age. And Genesis 25, 8. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, aged and satisfied, and gathered to his people. And that's it. Then there's this. Here in Genesis 50, when Joseph speaks of the evil of his brothers being used for good by God. Each of these few times that good is used by and defined by God, it's used in and in conjunction with life. In Genesis 1 creation was called good only after a place for life had been created. In Genesis 2 the tree of life in opposition to the tree of good and evil. In Genesis 3 man knows good and evil and is forbidden from the tree of life. In Genesis 15 and 25 a good age is defined as one that is full and long. And here in Genesis 50:20 what you intended for evil God intended to good, so that a great many people may be kept alive, as we've read in previous chapters. Good, by human definition, is and will be improper and fallible. But when we allow God to define good, we will find that it is nearly always connected to the saving of, the sustaining of, or the creating of life. Deuteronomy 30.15-16 through 16 says, See, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil, in that I am commanding you today to love Hashem your God and to walk in His ways and to guard His commands and His laws and His judgments. And you shall live and increase, and Hashem your God shall bless you in the land which you go to possess. Good and life, death and evil, they're equal in this passage. Then just a few verses later, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I have called the heavens and the earth as witness today against you. I have set before you life and death and the blessing and the curse. Therefore, you shall choose life so that you live, both you and your seed. Life and blessing, death and curse. And so at the end of all of that, they're told to choose one thing. Choose good? No. No choose blessing no choose life and what will be the result if you choose life well in Deuteronomy 30 verse 16 you will live and increase and in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 so that you live both you and your seed it is this it's life that is the proper definition of good and as we examine scripture throughout from one end to the other life comes about as a result of a combination of good and evil. Not only the things that we would call good or only things that we would call evil, but both work together to bring and to sustain life in the world. We are creatures of good and evil. We are creatures of death. But there is only one who is good and there is one who is life and who gives life. Now, so far, I've only spoken on how to define good and what is good, but earlier I stated that when to define is just as important as what. So when is it that good is defined in Genesis? Every time we see good defined by God, it's only after an action has been completed and it's all in place. When was Abraham's life and age called good? Only after he'd experienced a full one. What occurred to Joseph and his brothers is only good at the very end of the process. All throughout the process of getting to the land, the trials, the tribulations, it looked as though it was all evil. And yet in the end, good resulted. And what was the purpose of all of the evil that was then called good in the end? In Genesis 45, verse 5b, For God sent me before you to preserve life. Genesis 45, 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to give life to you by great escape. And this can be the greatest thing that we can learn from Genesis. Hardship and trial and persecution and more. We want to define these things as evil, and they may indeed be evil. But the truth is that good and evil should not be defined until all has passed, and the end result is then examined. I mean, the sacrificial system would seem to be evil because of the death that's inherent in it, but it's the system that gives life to humans. The Book of Numbers describes a whole lot of evil, and yet in the end, it is good as Israel enters the land fully prepared to face an enemy that inhabits the land. The exiles of Israel describe times of great evil, but they create the space for the ultimate good to arrive. The book of Revelation describes incomparable evils that will descend on the earth, but in the end, the result will be a kingdom of life. Joseph being sold into slavery, it was evil. Or or was it? Constantine as evil as he incorporated pagan festivals into the church. Or, or was he? Martin Luther was evil in his rejection of the Jews and anti-Semitism. Or was he? The Holocaust is evil, or was it? Yeshua's death was evil, or is it? Your financial situation, your marriage situation, your relationships, your career, your school, we can all too easily discover evil in each of these things, but we cannot so easily define them as evil because the world still continues. The things we call evil today we may find are the best possible things that could have happened to us. Joseph could have defined his slavery as evil. He could have defined the accusation of Potiphar's wife as evil. He could have defined his prison sentence as evil. But the end result was a good that was greater than all of the evil that had come before. Life results from this thing we call evil. And death results from this thing that we call good. How then can we even begin to define what's good and what is evil? Why do we insist that things must be one or the other? They're both. They're not good versus evil, but good and evil. It's the prideful and arrogant person, in my opinion, that declares what is good and what is moral in the moment. Because we can't define these things. The Torah defines what is good and evil, and those things are equal to life and death, and we have examples all through scripture of things that we examine and we can call evil occurring. But the end result of these things will in fact be good. It will be the ultimate definition of good in the fact that death will exist no more. Sin will be defeated. Our human experience will cease to be an experience of good and evil and it will become an existence of life in a kingdom of life ruled by the king of life created by the author of life and we will exist in the presence of the god of life and we will have life life eternal the real thing and not something found in the preservation of our flesh as it was in egypt all of the world the good and the evil that we experience is what keeps us bound to this flesh of death We choose death when we choose to know good and evil, and we choose death daily as we seek to define these things according to our own understanding. But for now, good and evil exist. Both exist in opposition and in attention, and yet in cooperation, in some crazy way that we truly cannot grasp. Do you want to know a secret? Rather than choosing the thing that seems good or seems evil, If you step back and look at a situation that you're in from afar, you may find a path of life in the middle, a place that's neither right nor left, a narrow path, a path that was walked by our Messiah, the tree of life given to men. And we are asked, take, eat of this tree. Come to him and drink the water of life, this one who embodied the word of life he is the definition of good and yet his life too was intimately acquainted with both good and evil and he is our guide so let's walk in his steps and his steps are the path of life and so we must darshai we must seek the life that he has for us and in that we find what is good shalom Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.